We all know how it feels to be afraid. Uh, We have big fears, small fears, uh, fears that make good sense and fears that don't. We have ongoing fears, momentary fears, public fears, private fears, fears for ourselves, fears for friends, loved ones, past fears that we may feel are haunting us, present fears, fears about the future. My daughter is afraid of thunder. My son is afraid of dogs. I am afraid of a family member getting hurt because I neglected to do something that would keep them safe. I think coping with fear and anxiety uh, is just a very common experience that we all deal with. And we've been immersed for the last couple of months in these these ancient letters, First and Second Thessalonians, that Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica. And as we've been discovering over the last couple of months, this church, this first century church, was full of fear. They were just immersed in it. They were brand new Christians. They had all kinds of questions and doubts about their faith. They were leaderless, experiencing violent persecution. And they were full of fear about not only their present circumstances, but the future. They didn't know what was coming in the future, and so they were just gripped by fear, and they were not meant to live that way, and neither are we. One fear that we know they had, because when you look at the two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, it shows up in both of these letters. One fear that seemed to really be on their minds was um, fear related to death and the afterlife and kind of the end of time. That was something that they were just really stuck in, a fear that they were just mired in. Um, and we saw, if you were here this, a handful of weeks ago in First Thessalonians, that Paul wrote to them about this to encourage them. He said, look, we have hope. We know the end of the story. Jesus is going to return at the end of history. He's going to usher in his kingdom. He's going to put everything right. His whole church from all of time is going to be together forever with Christ in a perfect new heaven and earth. That's the end of the story. It's going to be good. We can bank on that. And that's what he communicated in the first letter. I think Paul's tactic in that first letter was uh, basically the same tactic that my parents used when I was a kid and I had a doctor appointment. And I remember driving to the doctor and sort of nervously asking, like, so what's going to happen? Tell me about this doctor appointment. Like, what's going on? And, and I remember them saying, you know, like, big picture, it's, it's fine. Like, the doctor's good. They're going to help you check, make sure you're healthy, you know, maybe give you some medicine if you need it. You'll get a sticker or a lollipop at the end. This thing's going to be great. Big picture, that was true. But as a kid, what was my fear? Am I going to get a shot? Is there a needle involved in some way today? Um, because I was afraid of the pain. And I think when Paul spoke in First Thessalonians to this church about the afterlife and the end of history, I think he was basically giving them the doctor appointment without the shot speech, uh, where he's like, it's going to be good. You don't have anything to worry. In the end, everything works out. It's fine. It's all good. And that is true. But isn't there all this other stuff in the Bible about, like, the clash of good and evil at the end of history, you know, um, this cataclysmic end of time, Armageddon, all that kind of stuff? Yes, that is in the Bible. There is more to that story. Uh, Paul kind of skipped over that in First Thessalonians when he was talking about the end of history. Um, and he wasn't doing that to really uh, deceive them or gloss over it, but it, because his main goal with them was to encourage them. It's going to be fine in the end. 
You don't have to worry. The, these present struggles you're having aren't going to last forever. Um, but what we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at today is that they were still grappling with this question and this fear about the end. And so he's going to speak again about it in more detail about the end times. And what I mean by the end times is the end of history as we know it, leading right up to the point where Jesus returns and kind of ushers in his kingdom in its fullness. So they have these questions about this. They're still stuck in this fear. And so even though Paul had already encouraged them in 1 Thessalonians, he needs to tell them more. And some of the stuff he's going to tell them is kind of tough, but he wants them to know and to be prepared. And so the question that we're going to be driving at today as we explore the, the biblical text is the question that seemed to be on their minds uh, back in the first century. And, and it was this. This seemed to be what they were wrestling with. What, if anything, can we do to be ready for the end times? What, if anything, can we do to be ready for what's coming? Like, is there a special bunker we need to build? You know, do I need to get, like, good at archery? Like, what has to happen to be prepared for the end of history? Do I have to, like, memorize the whole Bible? What can I do? That's what they were grappling with. And so we're going to find out today uh, by seeing what Paul has to say in this second letter. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. If you're uh, not familiar with how Scripture is laid out, 2 Thessalonians is kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Um, and if you want to grab one of those Bibles on your table, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 809 of that version, though we will have it on the screens uh, as well, as we always do. But before we get into it, uh, there's a couple things I need to say to just make sure we're all sort of in the same frame of mind before we jump into this. We're going to talk today about some things that are strange to our minds, uh, they're not easily understood. Um, and I actually think that's the beauty of a series like this where you just walk through a biblical text from beginning to end is it will take you to places you wouldn't have thought to go. But here the scripture is saying, hey, this is important for you to think about. And I think that's sort of where we are today. You might not have been thinking in your life, gee, I need to go learn about the end times. Like I need that in my life. But there is some truth to be discovered in understanding what God said about this that does impact our daily lives. Um, but it is a little bit strange. We're going to talk about today the end times, tribulation, evil, the Antichrist. He's in the Bible. Um, things that can make us a little uncomfortable or unsure or maybe bring out a little skepticism in us that we might not have even known was there. Um, I want to just give you a little food for thought because we have a couple of tendencies. Many people, uh, including people in the church, have no trouble believing in the supernatural as long as it's positive. <laughs> God exists, yeah. He loves us, yes. Jesus was a real person, of course. He healed miracles. He rose from the dead. I've been forgiven of my sins. Angels love all of that. But then simultaneously, we adopt a skepticism about spiritual evil, Satan, demons, hell. In our minds, it can kind of seem cartoonish, medieval, fake, and so on this either conscious or unconscious level, we discount that as, as not being as real as the good side of things. Or maybe it's outdated. Like, well, that was real when Jesus lived, but come on, it's 2019. <laughs> the truth is, if you believe in the supernatural world, an all-powerful creator God, that he had a son who was raised from the dead, it is not far-fetched to also believe that there are other supernatural forces at work against God and against us. 
That's not illogical or far-fetched if you accept that there's a God. And also, if you look at Scripture, God created us and angels with free will. Did you know that? The angels were created with free will. And this is out of God's desire for us to have the ability to have an authentic relationship with him. He didn't create robots. So if that's true, uh, because we were created with free will and the angels as well, there are angels and humans who will choose not to love and serve God and to oppose him. God allowed that possibility, which is what happened. And Jesus and the New Testament writers spoke about this reality all the time. Here's just one example. In Ephesians 6, Paul's writing the Ephesians, and he says this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So he's saying it right there. There is a lot more going on than we see with our eyes. And by the way, if you lived in the first century, if you're just like a a person living in first century Israel, and you're walking around, and you start getting, hearing word about this guy, Jesus, because word was spreading about him rapidly. He had a reputation. Uh, Do you know what what you would have heard about him if you lived back then? You would have heard that he was a traveling teacher, that he was a healer, and an exorcist. He was continually dealing with demons, casting out demons. That's one of the things that he did. Now, Satan wants us to think this stuff about him. He's fake, he's outdated, he's medieval, he's cartoonish, because then we just sort of forget we're not concerned about his work in our lives and our world. So that's one tendency is we sort of like, we love the positive supernatural and the negative. We're like, eh, I don't believe that. The second tendency we have, and this is hard to admit if this is true of us, but we are more comfortable with a comfortable Christianity. We want to know God, salvation, we've got heaven, you know, check that box, but we're, we're averse to sacrifice and hard things. We don't want to look hard truths in the eye. And so in this case, we want our relationship with God to be the doctor appointment that skips right to the stickers and lollipops. But we don't want the vaccine. We don't, we, we don't want the treatment. We just want the cure. We don't want the hard things. And so I, I say all this as a prelude to actually getting into Second Thessalonians because I want us to hear Paul's words about the end times with an open mind and an open heart. Uh, let's just try to leave behind the filters, the preconceived ideas, the cynicism, the unexamined skeptical thoughts, and just hear what Paul had to say to this first century church, God's word. Let me just pray that that would be true of us right now. Lord Jesus, would you speak to our minds and hearts in these next moments as we get into your word? We know, Lord, there are going to be things we don't quite understand, but we know you want to change us. And Holy Spirit, you want to transform us with your word. And so would you do that now? Would you break down the barriers in our minds and hearts and allow us to hear you, your voice? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So let's stop there for a second. We get here in these couple verses a window into the fear that the Thessalonian church had. 
uh, it, Paul had spoken in the first letter about the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back and every, all the church of all time is gathered together and new heaven and earth, the day of the Lord, they had heard about that. But apparently somebody who wasn't Paul had told them, yeah, Jesus already came back. And they're thinking, did we like miss out on this? Like, have we been left behind? So Paul is writing now to encourage them and us. And I would highlight this if you're taking notes. Um, not to become easily unsettled by people who make these kinds of claims. And I say kinds of claims because not just a specific one of Jesus already came back. People who make these, these bold declarations of exactly what's happened or timelines and about the end. Like, don't be easily unsettled by that stuff, he's telling them and us. Because, as Paul's about to explain, there are going to be some undeniable events that occur before Jesus comes back. Undeniable. Not like you have to figure it out, but they will just be obvious. And so he's about to go into that. So let's keep reading in verse uh, three. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day, that's Jesus's return, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So let's stop there for a second. Paul is saying very clearly, before the end of history, when Jesus returns to make everything right, usher in his kingdom, perfect world, everything the way he wants it to be, before that happens, this rebellion will occur. Highlight rebellion if you're taking notes. And that is going to occur around the time this individual becomes known, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him. Rebellion there, don't think armed conflict, um, in the original Greek language, Paul was writing in the Greek word there is apostasia, which is where we get apostasy. So what he's saying there is that many people in the church will abandon their faith during this rise of this figure, the man of lawlessness. He's called the Antichrist in other parts of scripture. Um, and he's described as doing several things. Uh, so I'm going to just highlight these for you. There's four of them. We'll just throw them up all there at once, all the highlights. But he's going to oppose God. That's the first thing. He's going to oppose. So he's going to stand opposite, literally is what it says, opposite God. He's going to oppose God. He's going to exalt himself. So he's going he's to make big claims about himself. And it says he's going to set himself up in God's temple. Now that doesn't literally mean uh, the temple as it was in the first century. That the, 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 the biblical notion of setting something up in the temple meant basically to stand in God's place. And so that second phrase here, proclaiming himself to be God, is like an explanation of what that means, setting himself up in God's temple, is to proclaim yourself God. So this person is going to claim to be God. And this figure, by the way, was, was prophesied centuries earlier in the book of Daniel, uh, he wrote about it in a lot of places in Daniel. I'll just read you one verse. Um, he wrote this. He, that's the same person, will exalt and magnify himself. Same language. He'll exalt himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. So for centuries, God's people knew that this person would come 
and oppose God and claim to be God at some point. Now Paul is saying, yeah, that person's coming. And by the way, Jesus spoke about this. These are the parts of Jesus' teaching that I don't think make it up onto Facebook a lot, but he talked a lot about the end times and what's going to happen at the end of history. And look what Jesus said. This is, a, I kind of condensed down a little bit, a longer passage in chapter 24 of Matthew. But this is Jesus speaking. Look what he says and how it resonates with what Paul said. Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That means the church. See, I've told you ahead of time. Jesus said this is going to happen. Here's how it's going to look. Don't be deceived. And Paul is speaking of the same moment in 2 Thessalonians. He's describing, again, what the Old Testament prophets said, what Jesus said. There will come this time of serious trouble for the church at the very end of history, coinciding with the rise of this charismatic figure making divine claims about himself. And many Christians will abandon their faith and follow this man of lawlessness. By the way, a little sidebar, it is pointless to ident- try to identify this person with a current or former political figure that you happen not to agree with. Um, Christians have been doing this for generations with kings and popes and presidents and other figures that they disagree with. That is not this situation. This situation is undeniable. It is public. It is someone claiming to be God in the flesh. As far as I know, no recent politicians have tried to do that. Literally, I am God, worship me. That is what's being described here. And many of the church will be deceived and believe this claim. Um, And Paul is saying Jesus' return to restore everything and make everything right won't happen until after this happens. Um, Let's keep reading. A few more verses here. We're going to highlight several things as we go in this next section. Um, Just kind of hang with me. There's going to be some concepts that you're like, whoa, but we'll tie it together after. Um, So he says in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So they've had conversations about this. I used to tell you this stuff. Verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back. Him is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. You know what's holding him back so that he he may be revealed at the proper time. For, and if you're highlighting, highlight this phrase, The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back, highlight that too, the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be, I would highlight this, in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Highlight that. You've seen that phrase, signs and wonders. Jesus said that. Signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, highlight this, God sends them, 
a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who've not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Okay, several things we need to clarify there. He starts out by saying there's this secret power of lawlessness at work. This is essentially saying Satan and the evil spiritual forces opposed to God, they're working now, but it's not publicly observable. You know, it, it, it's, it's secret, but at the end of history, that will change. It will no longer be hidden. It will be public. Um, and it says, for now, someone is holding this evil back. In fact, in the Greek, it's, uh, it's the, the restrainer is, is the word um, used for this person or figure holding back what Satan is trying to do. Scholars debate who this restrainer is. Most have landed on Michael, the archangel, because there's language there that mirrors the biblical description of him in other places. Some say it's the Holy Spirit. The exact person who's doing the restraining isn't the main point. The main point is God has a mechanism in place right now to limit the activity of Satan to some extent, holding back the full expression of his agenda, and that that will one day, that restrainer will be removed at the time that this man of lawlessness rises to prominence. It says the man of lawlessness works in accordance with how Satan works. That tells us it's not Satan. He's somebody else working in league with Satan. And he performs signs and wonders. As Jesus said, watch out for those false prophets. They're going to perform signs and wonders. Paul says that's going to happen with this individual. And that those signs and wonders serve the lie. The lie that he's God. Remember, he's going to claim to be God. I'm God. Voila, look at this. See? Now do you believe me? That's the picture here. And that's probably why some people will follow him, is he does these miracles that, well, only God can do that. Jesus and Paul told us, do not believe it. Then in verse 11, there's this very strange phrase I had you highlight. It says, God sends a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. Ouch. That sounds a lot like God like wants this person to come, wants people to be deceived, wants people to not believe in him and be rescued. That can't be true because when you look at all of Scripture, the context of all of Scripture, we know God loves everybody. He wants everybody to come into a saving relationship with him. And that doesn't just change because of this one little murky phrase. When you drill into the grammar of that phrase, it's not talking about a purpose. Like God sent this man of lawlessness so that he'll deceive people so they won't be saved. It's just giving us the sequence of the results. It's saying God allows this person... He has allowed evil to operate on a level, resulting in that some people will believe it, resulting in that they will not know the Lord. They'll be separated from the Lord. That's, those are the natural consequences of what will happen. And that's in line with a thread we see woven throughout Scripture of, again, it goes back to the free will thing. God created us with free will. He allows us to reject him. He allowed the angels, some of them, to reject him. And the language in Scripture is often that God gives us over to that. If we reject the Lord, he allows us to. He says God gives us over to that. We can walk in that rejection. He, we're not robots. He doesn't force us to love him. And it's saying that, that this man is going to be this powerful delusion, and there will be people who believe the lies, and as a result, they will be separated from God's presence. That's what's going to happen as a result of all this. So just quickly snapshot, summarize. Paul's been saying that at the end of history, this lawless one, this antichrist, will rise to power. 
operate freely after the Lord's restraint is removed, this person will call himself God and lead many astray, and God will allow those people to follow him if they choose to. But there's some good news we sort of glossed over right in the middle of that. In verse 8, I want to make sure we go back and highlight. When the man of lawlessness is talked about, verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. There's the end of the story embedded right in the middle of all that. Even though there will be this season of suffering in the church, in the world, like has never happened, Paul gives us that end of the story. Jesus will overthrow this Antichrist figure. His time is going to be limited. The final chapter has been written. And then Paul has a few more words to say to them. He's been describing these things, which can be fearful to to hear about, but he wants us actually to not be afraid of these things. Because we know the end of the story. Jesus has and will defeat whatever fearful things are coming. So let's just read the last couple verses um, that that Paul wrote to them. So he, he says all that, and then verse 13, Paul says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. You see, Paul, he can talk about the hard things at the end of history, the man of lawlessness, evil, and then he can just transition seamlessly because in his mind there's, there's no disconnect to saying, even though all that's true, we have eternal encouragement in Christ. We have good hope. Your heart should be encouraged and strengthened because you know the end of that story. So he just had the shot part of the conversation with them. They knew about the sticker and the lollipop. He just gave them the shot part of it. But he's saying that's still true. The end is good. You don't need to be worried. The hope in Christ should anchor your hearts. We can trust God, that he's God, that he's in control, that the story ends well, even if there is this cataclysmic struggle in the final act of human history. And we don't know when this is going to happen. The early Christians thought it was going to happen soon. We know that. And most generations in between then and now thought it was going to happen soon. We don't know. It could be next week. It could be 500 years from now. We don't know. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, it's not even worth speculating on the timeline because it'll surprise you when it happens. So we don't know. But I want to come back to that question that we started out with, the question that seemed to be on the minds of the Thessalonians and a question that I think comes to our minds as we read this. What, if anything, can we do to be ready for the end times, knowing everything that's going to happen? How does that change our lives now? I'm going to give you a very concise answer. Trust God. Trust God. It's all we can do, and it's all we should do. Trust God. Jesus will restore his creation, resurrect his people to an eternal life with him and each other. But let's be honest for a second. When I just said trust God, probably a number of us are thinking, well, okay, there's the Bible answer. That's the, that's the obvious answer. Yeah, got it. Trust God. I, I know the drill. That doesn't feel very um, substantial when you're feeling fear in your life 
about whatever it is. If you're dealing with you know, insecurities as a parent or you're walking through a very painful, fractured friendship, or you're coping with a bad diagnosis or a loved one who's ill, or your financial future is unsteady, or you're just depressed, maybe you feel uh, just a hopelessness or a lack of purpose, or maybe you are worried about the future and the end times like the Thessalonians were, whatever it is, you know, just saying trust God can feel simplistic or like it's just a little sentimental pep talk, but it's not. It's actually a profound truth at the heart of our faith. Because to trust God really is to believe he's real, to believe he knows you and loves you as you are, that you were worth dying for in his eyes, that he has history firmly in his grip, that through Christ, our eternal future is secure and good. And to trust God is not just to believe those things on some intellectual level up here, but to let that migrate down to your heart and actually rest in it. To think and live as if that's all true. That's what it means to trust God. That's what Jesus has offered us, the ability to know him and trust him in that way. The degree to which we trust God will have a direct effect on the amount of fear that we feel. And Jesus continually linked these two ideas of trust and fear. When you, when you notice that, you, it'll just start jumping off the page to you. So, for example, there was this man um, named Jairus uh, whose daughter was sick, and he heard that Jesus was a healer. And so he went and found Jesus, and he, he just begged him, my little girl is sick, she's going to die, can you please heal her? And Jesus starts to go to the man's house, and then the man receives word on the way that his daughter had died already, it was too late. And, and just the waves of despair and grief and hopelessness are washing over him. And in that moment, look what Jesus said to him, this very simple phrase, you don't be afraid, just trust. Fear and trust. And if you know the story, uh, Jesus raised his daughter to life. Now, he doesn't promise that kind of instant miracle for all of us in our situations. But you know what the amazing thing is? He does promise that exact miracle for all of us at the end. We will be resurrected to eternal life. Another example, Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A storm starts, the water's coming into the boat. They're sinking. They think they're going to die. Jesus is taking a nap at the back of the boat. One of my favorite little passing references in the Bible. So Jesus is asleep, and they're like, Jesus, we're going to die. What are you doing? He calms the storm, and look what he says. Why are you so afraid? Do you not yet trust me? Fear and trust. Will it be trust or fear? The more we trust God about any fear that we have, whether it's about the end times and our future or anything going on in our life, the more we trust God, the more our fears will fade. It doesn't mean they'll go away completely or that light, we will never experience fear in life, but they will fade and they'll have less power over us. 
Christ, our future is secure. In spite of whatever personal struggles we're going through, in spite of all the hard things that are coming in the future for the church that Paul talked about, we can trust God even about those things. And by the way, speaking of the end and the man of lawlessness and that whole situation, a heart that knows and genuinely trusts the Lord won't be easily led astray at that time by someone falsely claiming to be God. Jesus will overthrow evil, usher in his perfect kingdom, and the church will live forever with him in unimaginable joy. We don't have to live in fear. I want to just close with a verse from Isaiah that I think just really captures God's heart on this. Isaiah 41, verse 13. God says this, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I'm going to stay with you. Don't fear, I'm going to help you. Don't be afraid, just trust. Why are you so afraid? Don't you trust me? God says that to us over and over and over. Trust God. It's all we can do and it's all we should do. Do not fear, I will help you. We can rest in that.